Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Hello, Tinder Wild podcast listeners. We are thrilled today to have just such a dear human in our midst in the studio with us. Dr. Rachel McLaren is our guest, and she is an associate professor in communication studies. She happens to also be a yoga and group fitness instructor, a mama of three, and she is an eternal optimist. And I know this as mm. being a friend of hers. She's always able to look for the good in things. Her research focuses on how people talk about and understand emotion and conflict in their relationships, (laughs) something we all experience. So we're super excited to dig into how do we work with conflict. She is also a workshop facilitator and senior head coach for the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. She enjoys new experiences, learning new things. She came in today with this gorgeous dress on, and I'm like, where did you get that? She made it. Of course. Like, when did you sew? Oh, about a year ago I started. I wanted to learn something new. She's amazing. And she also loves connecting with others in community. Welcome, Rachel. Welcome. Thank you. Such an honor to be here with both of you. We're so happy to have you. Yeah. We love having conversations in person. Um, yeah. Just the palpable sort of connection energy that happens because we're all you all at home can't see this but we're sitting in this little circle very close to one another like we can touch (laughs) each other so um it's it's quite powerful to be together yes so you have such an impressive bio and I was thinking about all the things that you've kind of woven into your career and your work with others and and your teaching um we always like to start with guests and, and really understand your first 10 years and, and what it was like growing up for you and what were some of the things that you experienced and that you'd be willing to share with us about those early years. Yeah. I, the qualities I had as a kid were that I was very positive. I was always looking for the good in people, always very giving. So um, I was the oldest of four kids, super responsible as well. Uh, but very, I just remember like offering to do things for free. Like I'll babysit for free. I'll do this. And my brother who now owns his own business was like, Rach, what are you <laughs> doing? <laughs> like, you got to charge money for that. I'm like, oh no, it's fine. Um, so I, I remember being a very, very positive kid. And I kind of had an interesting upbringing. My um, parents were both teachers originally. My dad was an English professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, my mom used to be a high school teacher. And then they ended up starting a church in my house when I was two um, mm. and just a non-denominational church. So we had, our house was always full of people big in community. So um, we had refugees living with us at different points. We had a family of Cambodian refugees living with us for six months in a very tiny house. Um, We had people always renting the basement. There was, you know, just growing up, I just remember 
our friends were always loud over. There was always people there. So if someone knocked on the door, I would answer and say, hello, come in. Like, it didn't matter who they were. It was just like, just come right in. You learned to be welcoming at a very young age. Yes. And that has certainly continued throughout my life. Um, And I, my mom has always called me a collector of people. So Mm -hmm. I think I also have always enjoyed connecting with others. And I also have distinct memories being on vacation as a kid and being at the beach. And I'd watch all the kids playing in the water and decide like, who's going to be a good friend. Oh, wow. And I would walk up to them and say, hi, my name's Rachel. Do you want to be my friend? Wow. And some you knew of them, who to pick. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I would study them and, um, mm. which is, is definitely foreshadowing yeah. um, <laughs> where your career took you, right? Took me, yes, for behavior. sure. So, um, yeah. So I remember connecting with people in that way a lot. Um, community being really important. And then I was homeschooled until fourth grade. Um, so right. my mom taught all of us for a number of years and at a certain point it became too much with all of us. And so we went to public school when I was in fourth grade. So I was nine years old at the time. Uh, I think even then I was so innocent. I was so naive. Mm. I didn't, you know, I remember someone said, Chris wants to go with you. And I said, what's going with someone? Where? And that, right, exactly. It was like that person That's what we you. used to call it, people. Yeah. Right, that. go with you. Yeah, yeah. it was it, go together. very strange. Um, so I just didn't know, you know, I, 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 there was a whole new world of people and relationships mm. to interact with. And Was it a hard transition? It was a little bit. Um, I remember looking back, I don't think my teacher was that great, but I had never had a teacher before. And I was so excited about having a teacher. And so I was class president. Your first year. My first year. (laughs) Well, that's also some foreshadowing. Yeah. (laughs) Leadership. And I tried to convince everyone that we should get him a world's best teacher t-shirt at the end of the year. I was like, if everyone contributes a dollar, I can get this t-shirt made. And I looked it up in the yellow pages and I had to call and everyone was very reluctant because they didn't like him as a teacher. Mm, (laughs) But he was your first teacher. teacher. So yeah, we got the t-shirt made. um, And So I remember that. And that was also the year um, that my little brother got diagnosed with cancer. So he was six at the time when we started school. He was starting first grade um, and he got diagnosed with ALL leukemia in October of that year. So it's a big year of transitions when I was nine um, between starting school for the first time and then him going into what ended up being three and a half years of chemotherapy. Oh, wow. He's totally fine now, has made a full recovery, but was certainly a big part of our you know, our whole family dynamic kind of shifted um, for a number of years to, you know, make sure that his health was taken care of. We couldn't bring a lot of germs into the house, constantly washing our hands or, um, and you know, anything could be dangerous. So did that stream of people constantly coming into your house then suddenly stop when you had to be more careful about germs? You know, that's interesting. It didn't that I can remember. We still had people renting our basement. We still were allowed to bring people over. Um, yeah, I don't remember that affecting that too much. I just remember it was like march straight to the bathroom, wash your hands. Mm. You know, we just had to be mindful if anybody got sick or things like that. Um, yeah, so that my brother and I have always had a really close connection. We're really similar. And so I remember that also being something that tested my positivity in some ways as a young kid. Um, I actually still have my journal from fourth grade and we used to have to do like free writing at the beginning of each day. And I found this entry that said, today I'm deciding whether or not to worry about my brother. Oh, 
and I, you know, maybe he's going to be okay, but maybe he's not. And just trying to grapple with that as a nine-year-old. And my parents were so forthright with information, which I think is really helpful for kids to not be experiencing fear on their own. They didn't know what was going to happen either, um, but were very honest with us about that. So it wasn't just like, oh, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. They were like, no, Mm. this is serious. This is serious. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So communication sounds like was very open in your household. Yeah, it was. I think, you know, I always joke, like my mom came from a big Italian family. They were always loud and, you know, just like playfully griping at each other. Um, My dad's family is a little bit more polite and would not speak to each other in that way. So I think two really different communication styles in those two different sides of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find yourself a bit of a combination of those? I, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I think I, I tend to be a lot more extroverted, so I'm more of the, you know, speak up and say what it is yeah, and let's talk yeah. about it. Um, that feels a lot more comfortable to me than than yeah. not knowing if there's something happening under the surface or sensing. So it. how did you get into the field of communications? Like what, what I mean, clearly mm-hmm. you had a bunch of examples of that growing up. Mm-hmm. And then how did you find your way into this field? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in people. And so when I got to college and realized there was a major that was essentially looking at relationships and communication, um, that was like a sub area. I was like, oh, yeah, that seems great. Mm. Uh, You can actually study this. Like, (laughs) tell me everything because I've been watching (laughs) people my whole life. Um, And so, yeah, it was a broad major. Um, And when I got done with undergrad, I felt like there's a lot more I still want to learn. And I just have always enjoyed learning new things. And so... Yeah, I went straight through grad school and then got a job here at the University of Iowa. So where'd you go to college? LaSalle in Philadelphia. Okay. Mm-hmm. So moved from, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and then I moved to Philadelphia. So two kind of pretty urban areas. And then I went to grad school at Penn State, which was not urban at all. That was quite a shock mm-hmm. um, moving there and then and then moved here. How'd you end up here? Job. Just yeah. Job. Yep. Kind of go where it takes you. Um, and luckily... My husband was willing to move here without ever having visited the state of Iowa. So, and nobody on the East Coast really knows where Iowa is. I always joke, my yeah. mother bought a third grade map when I moved to Iowa to like remind herself where I live. <laughs> I know, I know. It's offensive to the Somewhere in the middle. But, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so yeah, so that's, yeah, I got a job offer here and at 27. Yeah, yeah. so I got so straight you through school. You, because you didn't yeah. stop. You went right from college mm-hmm. to graduate school. So starting uh, work as a young Mm 27-year-old professor at a Big Ten University. That's kind Mm -hmm. of a a big step. Yes, it was. What were those early days like? Um, It was a lot of feeling unsure of myself, and I think that I realized that was conveyed to others. Um, So one was that I looked young, and so I don't think people expected me. So they would come to my office, and my name was on the outside of the door, and they'd say, I'm looking for Professor McLaren. And I'm like, I'm here. It's me. I'm sitting behind the desk. Um, Mm. And they, you know, it just didn't compute for them. Um, And so even, you know, I remember moving here too, and people are so polite in Hy-Vee, for example. (laughs) And I was not used to that. I was very like, why is everyone smiling at me? Why are people, does everyone know I'm new? Like, this is so strange. And I remember, you know, they'd ask for things like your fuel saver. I was like, and I gave them my phone number. They're like, no, that's not what, what, I'm like, I'm sorry. I just moved here. They're like, oh, where did you come from? What do you do? You know, they'd ask all these questions. And when I'd say things like, oh, I'm an assistant professor, which was 
the rank that I was at. They were like, oh, you're an assistant to a professor. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm Dr. McLaren. <laughs> so I thought, you know, and then I started realizing like, oh, I just have to own this because mm. people, you know, were they were like curious and didn't it was hard for them to make sense of things and so I just started being able to to say yeah I'm a professor I know I look young yes I have a PhD like I just kind of led with like answering all of those Mm. things um because it it was yeah I think that I had to just kind of fake it till I made it reverse ageism yeah in a way yes yeah and I think that happens more I would say probably with females than it does um with males in terms of, yeah, you can't possibly know this area because you look really young. I was just talking to my friend who has a degree from Stanford, an incredibly successful person interviewing for this huge top position. And they just, they're trying to underpay her there. You know, there's so mm. many things. And she's like, I know they said, you're just so surprising. surprising. And I think that is the way wow. for them to say, you don't, we on Fit paper, you're not surprising. But when we see what you look like, they don't it's match surprising. up somehow in our heads of what someone with your yeah. you don't fit expertise. in the box. Yeah, you don't fit in the box. Yeah. yeah. And so then what are your choices? You know, it's like, well, then you either have to overperform. And I think this happens for women. It certainly happens for people of color where, you know, you you, you might overfunction, right, to kind of prove your your worth. Is that what you did, do you think, um, in those early days? Yeah, I don't know. I think I... I think I mostly just tried to be confident Mm. Um, and, but I think the insecurity was still there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. You were very conscious of self-conscious. Yes, I was. I was for sure self-conscious about that. Um, And now I'm like, "Hmm." now I look older and I am older, so I don't get that as much, but I think there's still ways in which that happens, you know, that people walk into a classroom and they're like, hope you know what you're talking about. Mm. (laughs) Um, And you just kind of have to. Yeah. I hope that you'll win them over by being yourself. And yeah. if you don't, then they were never going to be won over anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. So your area that you, I know you studied a lot of different things in the communication realm, but one of the things that Kate and I were like, oh, we want to talk about this is um, building meaningful relationships and like how you deal with conflict mm-hmm. in relationships. And I know, I think you're teaching a class right now, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. building meaningful relationships yeah. to undergrads. Yes. Yeah. Seniors. Mm-hmm. What Tell us what, what this is like. Yeah. What are you learning? What are they learning? Yeah, I think, um, and I teach a class on conflict and we're going to have a unit on that as well. I wanted to teach a new class. I was kind of bored of the other things that I was teaching. And to me, I wanted to develop a class that was around what I'm saying are like six skills for building meaningful relationships. Um, and so, so far in the first half of the term, we've talked about combating loneliness and cultivating friendships. Um, we've talked about community care. So how do you ask for help? How do you show up and give help to people when they need it? Our college students are certainly struggling with mental health issues right now, as is yeah. the rest of the world. But yeah. but especially we see, we're seeing that in college students. Um, and then right now we're on a unit on meaningful romantic relationships. Mm. And then after the break, we'll talk about conflict, boundaries, um, and then apologies and forgiveness. Ooh, wow. I like feel like every, I want to take every this human being needs this class. <laughs> yeah. I keep joking that I want to teach a class called How to Human. Um, How to Human. Oh. <laughs> which wow. this is kind of, you know, a lot of the things that I think are important for humaning. It's yeah. hard. There's so many things to, to figure out and, and negotiate. Yeah. But I think navigating conflict is one that can make or break relationships, um, workplace relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, our ability to 
to navigate those tricky situations, I think is really key. Yeah. Yeah. That ability to, it affects the culture of any organization, culture of any family. I mean, it's, it really is the essence of how it feels to be in those Mm -hmm. places and spaces and, and can really affect, I know, and I mean, my area would be more in workplace, but engagement. So how engaged are you if you don't feel safe and yeah, conflictual environment? Yes, absolutely. And I think people get a sense pretty early on, like, am I allowed to speak up here? Mm -hmm. Is, do people say what they really think here? You know, what, what is that? Am I safe to say that? Um, And especially in the workplace, those power dynamics can have a big influence on the types of conflict that might unfold and what things that might be more um, direct and what things might be more indirect, indirect and sort of underneath the surface. Yeah. I think one thing that's important when you think about systems, like you're saying, like a workplace system or a family system is that conflict is a natural part of systems. And I think for many of us, we're taught that conflict means there's a problem. Yeah. There is sort of a problem like that we have to address, but it's not, it's not abnormal. It doesn't mean the system is broken. In fact, in group development research, Um, This is a necessary phase for groups to hit what's called a storming phase before they can move into more functioning. And if we're not, then we're probably operating at this level of politeness and this level of maybe formality that we're not actually digging into. That's so good. Okay, I love that. I have to repeat this back. The (laughs) storming phase. Yes. So what a lot of people would want to avoid at all costs, the storm that whips around you and creates chaos, we'd want to avoid that, that actually it's the necessary step that you have to go through to get to more health and function. Yes. And norm. Norming. Norming, right. Yeah. So it's called Tuckman's model of group development. Yeah, and it, I love it. It rhymes as many of these models do. So the first is forming, storming, norming, and performing. Mm. And then the last stage you have to stay with kind of a weird way to make it rhyme, adjourning. But adjourning <laughs> is the last stage. Mm. So those are group development stages. But I think those that happens in romantic relationships totally. as well, in families, in friendships even. Mm, um, totally. At some point we're probably going to have a bump in the road, right? And that's normal and that's natural. And in some ways we should welcome it as a way that um, we can develop our relationship further. I feel like this is such an important lesson for so many people that that conflict again, doesn't mean that you should discard the relationship, but in fact, it's a potential growth strengthening point Mm -hmm. if you are willing to go through it. But I think so many people aren't willing to go through it. I know in my past, I've avoided uh, conflict in massive ways, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't want to go there. I'm too nice. I don't want to deal with that. And yeah, I've probably missed out on opportunities to strengthen those relationships. Mm -hmm. So how would you teach someone who maybe is conflict resistant Mm -hmm. or avoidant to be willing to step into the storm? Yeah, I think part of it is convincing people it's worth it, right? Like, if, if I don't know what's in it for me, like, why am I going to do that? It's going to be uncomfortable. Probably it's going to bring up some feelings like it's going to be hard. Um, and I think one is examining like start by examining what are your beliefs about conflict, because that shapes our experience of what it is. And probably for some people that are conflict avoiders, I actually spent an entire week talking about conflict avoidance in my class because I think avoidance has gotten a bad rap. Mm. I think there are times to avoid And we have to use them strategically. 
we have to be using them, not because we're forced to use them because of dynamics in the system. There can be reasons to choose avoidance, which we could talk about. But we also have have to have other tools in our toolkit, right, so that we can choose whether there are ones that we're going to engage in or not engage in. So I think acknowledging what your beliefs are about conflict. um, For some avoiders, they tell me like they get physically sick when they have to to talk about conflict. conflict. And for them, that's a really different experience than some people who have a different conflict style that love conflict. It's like, I love debating things. It's like, it's, it's engaging. It's energetic. It's, it's fun. Or even people that have a more integrating style, they're like, let's stay up all night and talk about our relationship and work it out, (laughs) work it out. And, you know, and for the avoiders, they're like, Oh God, no, please. No, don't make me do that. Um, So we all come at this with really different inherent beliefs and I think it's important to not try to convince anybody there's one way there's one way or that there's one belief that's right like if conflict makes you physically ill that it's not good or bad right or wrong it's not so dual it's no there are many ways to to face conflict yeah yeah and we have to kind of push ourselves a little bit to to recognize and be discerning about what situations require us to step up right and I think part of this takes a lot it takes a lot of maturity sometimes and a lot of self-reflection that I think is hard for us, especially when we're younger, to be like, it's easier just to lash out. It's easier to blame other people, which mm. is most of us what we go to, right? Um, and there's a lot of ways in which, based on what we know in psychology, that we are so biased in our perceptions of what's happening. Oh, my God. That yes. story we tell ourselves. Yeah. Oh, so we're, stuck. We're not set up very well to do conflict like we come in with so many biases um a lot of these come from our own familiarity with our own point of view right like i know what dishes i did i know what i contributed to the household today like i know i'm really familiar with all the chaos in my day i don't know what's happened in your day yeah so and that lack of information like we're coming with all of that um story about our own selves and our own role in it and everything else um, that sets us up to not see things very clearly. Mm-hmm. So you have three kids at home and a husband and I'm so like, I'm just like, I wonder what their house is like. Do they, do they have conflict? Do they like work it through? Like, how do you, yeah, do you have different styles I'm in so your own curious. Home? How do you apply some of these like theory that you know yeah. in your day-to-day life? Yeah. Well, I always say like, it doesn't mean that I'm better at conflict. I just know what I'm doing wrong when I'm doing it wrong. Mm. Um, Sometimes it's so hard in the moment, right? And I think anytime when we're under stress or strain, we're going to go back to those well-worn paths of, you know, responding in certain ways. I think, you know, so much of what we learn in yoga and other things is trying to increase that pause between Mm. the action and our reaction. Um, Respond instead of react. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so hard. Uh, So... No, I think my my household probably looks very similar to everyone else's. I think because I care about conflict and emotion so much, I do teach my kids a lot about that. Um, And so I try to to work on things like active listening. Can you hear why that might have been upsetting to your brother when you did that? Like, can you repeat it back to him? Um, Usually they Mm. can't do that while they're angry, but later they might be Mm. able to. Uh, And that certainly shaped my perspective on things like apologies and conflict. Um, because that's hard. Like we had a very big script in my family. Like when there was a conflict, you had to right away say you were sorry. And the other person had to forgive you. And then it was over. Like that had to oh, be wow. over. Really? Yeah. So it was a very, it was ritualized, you know, but, um, 
But this is something that I've just made a different choice about how I'm going to approach that, which is there's those first 10 years yeah. that we always right? Like, honestly, yeah. like you had the script and you learned it. And it maybe worked in that system. But Mm -hmm. then as you grew older, you're like, oh, but there's so many other ways you Mm -hmm. can do this. Yeah. Yeah. And it maybe even led to you studying some of this. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. Not not a connection I had made before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so now we pause and wait until someone can actually feel that remorse because there is the act of saying an apology. um, But I think that's different than actually being able to hear the harm that you've done and say a meaningful apology. We all know what it's like to receive an empty, like, well, sorry Sorry. you feel that way. Or like, sorry that, sure you are. Sorry if that hurt you. Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you do a lot of, you've done a lot of work around empathy and connection. Mm -hmm. And I can see the intersection of conflict and empathy and connection too. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think that in order for us to really hear where someone else is coming from, it one, there's only certain phases when we can really hear that. And I think um, sometimes in conflict is not the best time for that. Our emotions are heightened. We are, our bodies are under stress. Our our cognitive functioning is limited because we're in this state. The empathy part of our brain is offline. Right. It's literally offline, which is why we can't, we can't say we're sorry right now. Like we, we have to kind of downshift. Um, and so I think that finding if there's if you can find points of connection or, you know, to, to find empathy. Right. There's ways in which you can ch- kind of change the trajectory of a conflict. So one thing I talk about in my class is that there are there are these micro patterns we can get into in conflict. One is like attack, defend. Right. That happens a lot in conflict. I criticize you about something. You defend yourself. Maybe then I attack you back. Maybe then you defend yourself. We go back and forth. Um, There are also positive cycles that are reciprocal, like validation, validation. Mm. So if someone comes to me with a complaint and I can say, yeah, that I can totally see why that upset you. Right. Or tell me more about that. Um, And I can validate. Maybe I don't even agree, but I can at least validate the feeling that you have. Like, it sounds like you were really hurt. Wow. Something about that didn't feel good. Um, then maybe sometimes that can also spark validation from the other person. One person has to start that cycle. Mm. So we talk about how conflicts can get into this downward spiral very quickly. They can also get into an upward spiral, but um, we need to have some ways to, to shift what that, what's happening wow. in that conflict. And I think questions are like one of the biggest keys. Um, asking a meaningful question sincerely I so agree mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I think like if you can learn to pose and be curious mm-hmm. and question it it changes it diffuse, so much it diffuses it yeah yeah and it also shows that you don't assume you know everything mm-hmm. because how many times have we gotten into conflict and we have a whole story worked up oh yeah yep I and got all the answers right all the exactly things that we might want to say and then somebody says something totally different right and we're like I had no idea or wow that like, I guess I should put away the rest of my monologue, I was going to say, because this isn't really relevant mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so I think it shows that it shows a curiosity. It shows that you care about their point of view and that um, you don't necessarily know everything. So I think those are some things that can can lead to empathy and connection. I think the other thing is that sometimes we have the wrong job description. I think sometimes we think that there are things that we need to solve that maybe we don't need to solve. Um, 
so many things can be remedied through connection. Mm. And um, so I'll give you an example. It's not exactly about conflict, but is about my daughter when she was in preschool. And I remember one day I was rushing out the door to work and she said, oh, mom, you always have important places to go. And I never have anywhere important to go. Mm. And I immediately was like, my first instinct, what would you all have said? <laughs> Maybe. Sure you do. Yes, you do. You need to go to preschool. Preschool is so important. important. And your friends and your learning and all these things are important, right? A lot of times, especially as parents, we want to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. They come in the moment. In the moment, right? Okay, let me just, oh, you feel bad. Like, I'm going to take that And I'm going to hurry, so I'm going to make you feel good really quick so I can. Right, yeah. Right. And this was one of these days when I was thinking a lot about parenting, which I often do. And so as I'm rushing out the door, I have such a clear memory of this. I got down on my knees and I held her hands and I was like, oh. What is that like for you when you feel like everyone has somewhere important to be and you don't? Oh, wow. What a question. And she was like, it feels really bad. And, you know, she cried. And then I gave her a hug and I left. And that was it. Just acknowledged it. Yeah. Like, and Ken, even if I think that your reason for feeling that way isn't understandable to me, can I connect with something in that feeling in myself that does connect with you? And I think that is so powerful for shifting and and really creating more connection in our relationships, um, which can help yield more cooperation and more positivity. Like it can just lead to so many other things. But it's making me think that part of what we all have to do is get off of our high horse ego. I know the right answer and stay open to the idea that someone else's perspective is as Mm -hmm. pertinent, valuable, maybe even perhaps more correct than our, right? Like there's like a a humbling piece. I feel like what you're talking about is that, you know, we have to stay open to the fact that we don't know everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do. And I think there's so many things that are motivating us to see things in the way that we see them, right? Um, we want consistency in our view of ourself. We want to see ourselves in a positive light. It's really hard to hear criticisms yeah. about ourselves and to hear complaints. Yeah. And I think our brain immediately goes into how can I protect myself against this criticism? How can I show you that I was perfectly justified in doing what I did or, you know, show you yes. that you do just as many things as I do or, um, and I think it's, it's really hard. And especially, I mean, I will say there are some people that um, maybe don't have our best interests in mind that maybe have worked to manipulate us and turn information against us. And so that can really mess you up too, is figuring out, is it safe to trust what this person is saying? Um, To trust that, you know, and where, and that's something that's hard to grapple with, which is what I think we do in conflict so much. Who's at fault here? Like what happened? Mm. What happened, you know, as the situation unfolded? How do we make sense of this? Um, And I think that's really tricky when there's emotions involved, when we all have our perspectives of who we are. And something that I've studied in parent-adolescent relationships, like how do we make sense of these emotion-evoking events in our relationship? Um, How do we talk about them? How do we come to a joint understanding, if at all? Yeah. Because I... So many times we hear like communication, it just, just communicate, right? People just need more communication. Just talk about yeah. it more. Right. But what the research shows is that we can come into a situation with very different points of view of that situation and we can have a conversation about it and we can leave with 
even more divergent points of view because we have selective listening. We have expectation-related biases where I'm listening for what I want to hear. I'm listening for what is going to confirm my expectations and my beliefs and my stories. And I'm dismissing unconsciously everything else else that you're saying. So it can't just be communication, right? It can't just be let's show up here and talk. Um, So what is it then? It has to be more than that. Well, one of my phrases that I love using is from Brene Brown. And she talks about using this phrase, which is the story I'm telling myself is. And that is a great, I think, a great way to open sometimes a conflict conversation to be able to say, hey, this happened. And the story I'm telling myself myself is is, you did this because blah, blah, blah. Right. You did this because this or you, you know, you forgot my birthday because I'm not important to you. Or the story I'm telling myself is, you know, I was the last to know because you don't value me as much as everyone else or whatever the thing is. Um, That takes a little vulnerability to be able to articulate. But even using the word story shows that maybe there's a different story. Maybe I don't have the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. It opens it up for the other person to say that was my interpretation and then right. allow someone else to. Yeah. So this might be a hard question, but in your whole study of conflict and maybe even watching conflicts unfold in your own life or in other people's lives, would you say a conflict, like you said, it's hard to determine whose fault it is. Mm-hmm. Would you say that in every conflict, it's a mix, right? That there are, right, we're each bringing our stuff to the interaction. And so for it to be so black and white of, you're at fault. I'm not. It, it's it's almost never that way. Like, yeah. I, I'm just <clears throat> curious. Is there research or yeah, know, yeah? Data so on this? I would say so. Getting back to like the questions, right? Um, there's a line from an Ani DeFranco song that says, "If you don't ask the right qu- questions, every answer seems wrong." Mm. And so sometimes I feel like we're asking the wrong questions in conflict, like who's to blame. That is where we go. That's where our brains want to go. Who's responsible for this? How can I make sure this never happens again? And I'm going to make sure it never happens again if I can figure out who to blame, right? Mm -hmm. Or like who owes whom or, you know, who's the bad person here? Um, So I think that when we are asking a question like that, it's probably not the most helpful question, but that is what people usually go to in this. So fascinating. Um, Agree. That's exactly where people go. Yeah. Who's to blame? Who's at fault, right? And I think in some ways, in some ways, of course, we both contributed to this system, right? And there's probably situations where one person maybe was more at fault. Maybe one person really messed up, right? In a sense of betrayal or deception or other things where a person really, like they really might have harmed you and they, they do need to take ownership of that. It doesn't mean that you can't come to an understanding of how the system may have contributed to that. Mm-hmm. Um so in some ways, yeah, I think the blame question is is oftentimes where we go. Um, and and a lot of times it's we have so much that. discomfort and we're like, Ugh! like, even, I know when I'm upset about something, even if something is going wrong at home, I make these ridiculous statements that are me trying to make sure this never happens again. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we leave somewhere and the kids are melting down. I'm like, we're never leaving the house again. <laughs> like, we're not doing dinners past nine o'clock or, you know, I, whatever. Yeah. I make these yeah. declarative statements and that's just an effort for me to control something that yeah. I can't control, right? I'm going to blame this thing. I'm going to declare this is never happening again. Create a rule that right. we never... Right. So rigid. Like, mm-hmm. that's not what we need. God, we're so human, aren't we? I know. I know. Yeah. It's oh. true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in tra- I mean, we've kind of been talking a lot of different components of 
like how conflicts unfold. Um, but I, I think it's important. I don't know where you all want to go next, but I think it's important for especially women to be able to notice when things don't feel right to them. Mm, um, and that intuitive to, instinct. Uh, yeah. And also knowing again, that like discernment piece about when something is important enough to bring up. Um, it can be really hard to bring, to bring a complaint to someone, even to a friend, right. To be able to say like, but if something is bothering you, if you're not able to resolve it on your own, then it, it, you might need to have some kind of conversation. And I think because I know I, it was really ingrained in me being young, like look to others first. Like we're, we're taught so much to turn outward first. Mm-hmm. What do your siblings need? What are your, what do other people need? What do they want? Um, and many of us have lost access to our own desires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think women, especially yes, we have. And because we've so focused on, on turning everyone outward else. on everyone else, what does everyone else want? How is this making them feel? And there's a certain element to that, which is can help a system function really well, right? Which is why people might continue to want you to do those things in your system. Um, I was the friend that everybody knew I would be okay with anything, right? Like, Mm. oh, Rachel won't get mad. We can just have her do this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Um, And at a certain point, right, you reach resentment thresholds. Uh, And so figuring out for yourself is, you know, am I... is my lack of being willing to address these things turning me into a person I don't want to be? Right. Mm, so you that's become such an important question. Like you have a threshold of, you know, is this making me become someone I don't want to yeah. be? That's a powerful thing yeah. to, to yeah. sit with. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, you know, this whole podcast is about Women, and I know you as a social scientist are really tapped into cultural factors and that we as women have been conditioned into these small boxes and these certain pathways and that we do live in a system that's a masculine system and um, how to start to break out into more authentic ways of being So I'm curious to hear about like how maybe you've done that in your own life or how even all this study you've done Mm -hmm. informs the wild woman listening to this podcast that wants to um, be more real and more authentic and communicate in a different way Mm -hmm. and have a voice. I mean, I'm thinking about voice here. Yeah. Right. Because this is your study. But like, how do women find their voice Mm -hmm. in a culture where women's voices are often not listened to or it takes a bunch of people to come up with a me too movement for yeah people to finally listen to what individuals have been saying for a long time so yeah. what's your all your expertise and just your own personal experience of what do wild women need <laughs> to to i don't know survive in this or current or survive and thrive in this yeah. current cultural context mm-hmm. yeah i think this is such it's a big question it's isn't a it big question. Rachel, <laughs> yes just give, Dr. Us, McLaren, give, give us, us the top three <laughs> just, we'll just solve solve all those problems in the next answer um yeah i think that it always starts with self right i think it always starts with being able to notice these things in our own selves and it takes a little bit probably of stillness and a little pause which i know a lot of people don't have in their lives or are in- extremely scared of yeah uh, and there's so many things to distract us and keep us out of having to sit with our own selves. And I think there's 
so, you know, it's probably good instincts we have there of like, oh, this is going to be scary. I don't know if I have the skills to do this. Um, we might have to come to terms with our own anger, right? Our own grief around losses, around ways we've been treated, about ways that we maybe haven't shown up for our own selves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a big one for women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the grief about how we haven't shown up yeah, for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And many times, you know, as an emotion scholar, like we have our feelings. And then we have our feelings about our feelings. (laughs) And I think our feelings about our feelings are oftentimes where we add on layers of suffering that we don't necessarily need to do. And I don't, I think are counterproductive, right? I feel I'm judging myself. Um, I had a a hard situation at work that I was, I was ruminating about, had dreams about it was bothering me. And then I was angry at myself for letting it bother me. (laughs) And I was like, why can't I just get over this? I know my husband's sick of hearing about this. I know, you know, whatever it was. Um, And that's not good. That's not helpful. Right. Right, Adding that on to judging myself about that thing. So trying to get down to the base layer, I think is helpful because we're not going to be able to speak our voice and say what it is that we need or speak our own truth. If we're not willing to face that and come to terms with it in ourselves and understand it. Right. Because otherwise then, yeah, maybe I have anger and I'm like lashing out at everyone else or I'm blaming everyone else because I haven't gotten to an understanding of where that's coming from, right? It's it's misdirected. Um, there's a lot of reasons why we're completely justified in being angry right now. Um, and like, what what is it about this situation that is bothering me? Or, or another way of saying this, which is from Michael Singer's book, is what um, in me is bothered by this? Mm. In me, is what, what in, in me, me is, is bothered, bothered by this? By as this. opposed to. I mean, talk about the wrong job. Sometimes we give our mind the job of fixing, right? Fixing like our external world when there's a million things that could bother us in any situation, right? So I think it's both this balance of like, what is it that's, what is my truth in terms of what I'm feeling and what's bothering me? And also, where are there places where, you know, can, can I let go of certain things in order to reduce my suffering? Because I think also if we've been trained to to seek perfection, mm-hmm. um, those of us that are really hard on ourselves also tend to expect that perfection from others. Yeah. And I think we can get really rigid. We can get really and we consistently get disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> we're always yeah. like we're not living up to an right. expectation. Right. That are unrealistic for yeah. others. And you spend a lot of time just. Yeah. Being disappointed. Right. Right. Yeah. Being disappointed. Absolutely. And that's, that's hard when we're clinging to, you know, really clinging to certain things that, um, lowering our standards in certain ways can be super helpful, which, um, yeah. So, so kind of meandering an answer to your question, but I think it starts with, with acknowledging in ourselves what that truth is and being able to find a safe place to say what that is and maybe try it on for size. (laughs) Sometimes Mm. having a good person to talk to, right. Yeah. A friend Um, or a therapist or a group. Absolutely. To, to kind of work through that. And then I think also it, our, our intention matters, right? When we're showing up in a certain place and we're bringing, you know, I have, I was such a value driven kid and I'm, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I care about the climate. Like there's so many things that I would get really adamant about just telling everyone, educating people about mm-hmm. things. And, you know, my husband has even said to me, like, you know, all this plastic is not getting recycled, right? Like, you know, that because most of our plastic is not getting recycled in case you didn't know mm-hmm. this, but I, I don't think I really knew that. So oh, that's a whole other yeah. side conversation we can yes, have later. <laughs> it is. We we ship all of our recycling back to China and 
they don't want it. Um, they don't want our trash, which is understandable. So anyway, all this is to say that I'm like, but I don't, I, I am committed to my value in this way. And I don't want it. I don't want to become cynical. Like mm. I, I can both know the reality of this and also say, I choose, I choose to show up. Um, and, and because I don't want to let it, I don't want to let the cynicism of everything that's happening in the world mean that I stop showing up and I stop trying. Yeah. Um, oh, that's such a good message for right this point yeah. in our history. Right. When there are so many things to be cynical about. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit that way too. Yeah. And I, I've had some guilt about that because sometimes I think, yeah. you know, I have almost stepped back from some of the mm-hmm. conflict and like, the conversations mm-hmm. because I don't find them that productive. Yeah. And I'm an advocate by training, but I almost feel like my energy is better spent doing my own internal work. Mm-hmm. You know, we're helping people where I can and, and figuring out where my place is right now in, yeah. in history, to, in the world to like feel like I'm contributing without spending a lot of energy on the, the infighting and the, the conflict piece externally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's real. And I think that there's both can be like, we can have all both of those experiences in the same day. Right. It's like, that's true. Glennon Doyle talks about how she always wakes up carrying the most amount. And then (laughs) every day she quits. Yeah. At the, by the end of, there's some point at which at some point in the day, she's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm yep. done. Give no more shits. Right. <laughs> I'm crawling into my bed. I'm I, I'm giving up. And tomorrow I'll trust that I'm going to get a fresh download of energy and I'll do what I can that day. And then giving your, you know, self permission. Because I think we oftentimes go into that either or either I'm going to be all in. I'm going to fight the fight. I'm going to show up for every march. I'm going to do everything or I'm going to decide. It doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter anyway. I can that, do as one person. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think sometimes we think. We think about what that's going to do to the actual issue, but we also have to look at what that does to us. Yeah. What does that do to yeah, us if we decide um, that it's not, not going to recycle anymore? Right. Or just, it, I'm not, I'm not going to care anymore. Yeah. yeah. There was, I don't know if you heard the story. There was a, a reverend during the Vietnam war that every night would stand outside the white house with a candle in protest of the Vietnam war. And people would say, you know, do you really okay. think you as this one person is going to make a difference? And it's, it's going to change what happens in this war. And he said, no, but I am doing this every night and holding this candle every night so that I make sure that this doesn't change me. Yep. Mm. Yeah. That this is my act of, of resistance and saying, at least for me, I'm going to register. This is not okay. Right. This is a, it's a gesture that maybe people are seeing the external, maybe we'll have no difference in the outcome, but internally, internally it does. Yeah. 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 And I do think, of course, as the eternal optimist, I do think that we all have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think our own personal heartbreak is such a call to action for us. You know, maybe you, you, there are things that you're heartbroken about and other people don't seem affected by it all. And that's where you find purpose. That's where you find your purpose. Yeah. 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 And find like, Oh, if you really care about this thing, Notice mm-hmm. that, right? So many times we run from those uncomfortable feelings or we mm-hmm. say, that's too sad for me to read about that. So I'm going to not read about this thing. It's like, well. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things for women right now, especially women, I think, because we tend to almost absorb more of the pain or mm-hmm. we feel a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think empathy is, I mean, all the feminine traits, yeah. right? They're, they're like on high alert right now because of so, there's so much pain in the world. Mm-hmm. And figuring out where is the area that I can plug in mm-hmm. because you cannot plug into everything yes. at yeah. once. You can't take it all. It's too much. Yeah. Um, Glennon also talks about how, you know, during the last few years, it's like, the whole idea of rest and like mm-hmm. we need to also have each other's back. Like yeah. I may need to rest right now. Yeah. And so other women will step in yeah. and then it's like this balancing act yeah. of taking care of yourself and then caring about the world mm-hmm. and this ebb and flow of that. Yeah. And there's some comfort in that, that like there are others that can step up when you're too tired yes. and we can't, we can't really fight the good fight if we're constantly exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't the world want to sell us a whole lot of distractions oh, yeah. to uh. focus on as opposed to the things that are actually really important, you know, um, yeah. and that and and to exhaust us chasing after things we don't really need or things that don't really matter, mm-hmm. um, which I think is also can deplete us. Right. And and leave us without the energy for the things that maybe we, we are uniquely called to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the power of your message, which has been a message we have spoken so many times on this podcast, is that we have to start with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we have to get quiet, go in, like clean ourselves up mm-hmm. internally, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Grow up in, turn, in terms of our own inner self and yeah. work that. And then from that place, then we're naturally going to plug into the external world in the areas and the places where we are uniquely developed to be of service. But it always starts first with self-ownership, self-care, self-awareness, owning our own shit. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And back to conflict, that is, I mean, all of our unresolved stuff comes up up in conflict. All of our old patterns that we haven't examined from childhood. I mean, so much of the child. Yes. It all comes up. And so... So at, so back to like, why is the blame question not that helpful? I mean, in some ways, like what's happening right now is one piece of many layered reality of what's happening and what we're each bringing to the table. Um, and so I think figuring out a way to resolve our own stuff and also be honest with our partners like, wow, yeah, this is really hard for me. Maybe maybe I can explain for X, Y and Z reasons. Right. I know this doesn't bother you. This is a, this is the thing for me. Um then that allows us to go from there and have conversations about what we can do from there. Yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of times it starts with trying to understand each other and we don't have to agree in order to validate. I think that's really important for people to know, like you, you might think their anger is completely unjustified. You might think they should be over this by now. You, you know, you have all your own judgments. You can can still validate validate their feelings. Can you still validate? Yeah. And I think we have to be motivated to do that. But what's really cool is that anytime we validate someone um, and we engage in perspective taking, we tend to use more constructive feedback or constructive um, conflict processes. So anytime we can use a little bit of empathy, maybe I thought your point of view before was completely illegitimate. But I use some perspective taking, I ask some questions, I found some empathy, and all of a sudden I can see your position as more legitimate. I'm going to be more constructive without even trying because I can like, oh, yes, I see where you're coming from. Mm. Right. And it just diffuses it. Yes. It's yeah. like this magic yes. when you actually validate someone. Right. They're like, it's hard to like. It takes the wind out of their, yeah. <laughs> yeah. out of yeah. the people that in, maybe enjoy conflict. It's like 
It's also, it's empowering actually Mm -hmm. when you validate people. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I think there's a push push thing that Mm -hmm. happens, right? It's like, if you're coming at me with this pushing energy and I push back, like right. we're, and you, do you see this with your kids? Because this happens with oh, my kids yeah. all the time. I'm not going to brush my your teeth. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's not very helpful, right? Yeah. Um, wow, you really don't want to brush your teeth right now. You hate brushing your teeth. You know, uh, okay, I'm not going to push. I'm going to kind of <laughs> um, just going to reflect. Yeah, I'm going to reflect that, and then maybe I try to build some connection in other ways, and then maybe I try to go for cooperation. Um, when we're feeling connected, we're much more able to cooperate than we are when we're feeling competitive or antagonistic toward each other so boy and don't we need more connection right now yeah in the world yeah 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 in in our inner in our small worlds and then in our world yeah yeah our relationships are a little microcosm of yeah all all the bigger um, conflicts that are happening in the world yeah yeah. Um, Dr. Rachel, <laughs> you are so wise. Like, Aww, honestly, I feel like are. I could sit here for four more hours, <laughs> which I often do when I have coffee with you and pick your yes. brain about what do you think about this? Because yeah. you're such a beautiful combination of like such deep study and intellect and wisdom, but such compassion and intuitive. I mean, you just are such a beautiful so package Aww. of yeah. like being so wise and smart, but being so grounded and loving. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom. And we have to always end with our question, question. which I'm sure you know, because you yes. Yes. listen. Yes. I, but I'm really, I'm I, don't, I don't even know what your answer is. So I'm super mm-hmm. curious to know. So you know the question, but mm-hmm. in the book, Woman Who Run With the Wolves, there are a few precious doors into the world of the wild woman. If you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much, you can almost not bear it. That is a door. If you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So which door do you think you took into your life as a wild woman? Yeah, I think it would have to be the last one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Always a uh, deeper life. Yeah. Seeker wanting, wanting to know more mm-hmm. and wanting to figure out, is there another way to do this than the way the world tells me to do it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is there a way I can cry? Which was so perfect when you walked in today with this adorable dress on. I'm like, Rachel, where'd you get that dress? Well, I made it. I'm like, have you always? So no, I was just curious. It took it up about a year ago. I'm like, okay, you're a professor. You're a mother of three. You teach yoga and you make your own clothes. You're yeah. amazing. You are amazing. That is well, the true, like curious seeker, yes. right? It's, and you're, it's infectious too. Like when I'm around you, it's like, oh, I feel it too. I just want to keep growing and learning more and Aww. so thank you wow. yeah and thank you for being part of this movement to empower women yeah. i think this is these are hard this is hard topics yeah. but they're important ones for women to to think about connection and conflict and being able to move through this world um authentically and in a way where we are using our voice yeah yes absolutely so, and we're allowed to want things and we're allowed yes, to say we what are. we want and what we need yes yeah. mm. Thank you for today. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. Today's episode is sponsored by Kate Moreland Coaching and Heartland Yoga. As a coach, I am an advocate for authenticity and well-being for individuals, organizations, and communities. Through my coaching work, I like to help you connect to your authenticity. Whether you're an individual, a leader, or an organization, your creative power lies in your authenticity. Doing the work to understand your strengths and acknowledge the patterns and rocks that are in your way is the path to well-being. Whether it's your career or your relationship with yourself or others, transformative change begins within. You can reach me at katemorelandcoaching.com.
Heartland Yoga has been in business for nearly 15 years. I founded this studio with the intention for it to be a safe place where people could come and heal. I also knew that I wanted a business that fostered community and connection. So if you are looking to deepen your yoga practice, heal from physical, emotional, mental wounds, or simply connect with people who are like-minded, Heartland Yoga is a place that we would love to welcome you into, whether it's online or in person. You can find out more information at www.heartlandyoga.com. And now the amazing singer-songwriter, Lissy Morris with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week.